A time of worship that we shared this morning. I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 10. Our worship continues today through the study of God's Word. As we, as we look at the Word together and we uh, dig in, and speaking of looking at the Word together, our kids are going to be dismissed now to head upstairs to kids' crew because they're also going to dig into the Word today as they study today's story They're focusing today on the story of Solomon building the temple. As they work through our gospel project curriculum, excited for them to study together in worship. And even as we've mentioned already, there's a new batch, a new bunch that are with us in worship today. And it's exciting to watch them join in with their their friends, their siblings, with our other students as they head to Kids Crew Worship this morning. Well, we've taken the summer off from our study through Romans, but today we dive back in. We spent the first five months of this year, from January through May of this year, studying our way through the book of Romans, verse by verse, chapter by chapter this summer. We've taken a, a break, a time out of sorts, from our study through Romans to take a deep dive into the fruit of the Spirit. And so we've studied from June until just this, this past week, a week ago, we studied the fruit of the Spirit together in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But today we dive back into Romans, Romans chapter 10, and really it will be the, we'll catch the last few verses of Romans chapter 9, and then we'll be into Romans chapter 10, and we will spend essentially from today until about Thanksgiving time, just the lead up to Thanksgiving finishing out the book of Romans. You can scan ahead and and see that we essentially have six more chapters of Romans to go, starting in chapter 10, working through chapter 16 of the book of Romans, and we're going to finish our study as we work our way through this great book. But let me me just kind of catch you up. If if you have missed, or, or maybe even if you were here for all of it, but much like me, you've slept since then, and uh, you've thought about and done other things. Let's, let's do a brief recap of where we've been in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, we saw that Paul wrote boldly, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, that the gospel, the good news, is how we are saved from our sin. It's the, the power of God is set loose in our lives as we trust in Jesus by faith. And in Romans chapter 1, he wrote about this world. And he wrote about how God has revealed himself in this world so that even through creation itself, we see the majesty, the splendor of God. Even through creation itself, we're able to look at this world and we recognize that that this didn't happen by accident. This isn't, this isn't just some, some scientific miracle or some happy accident. There is, a, there is a creator. The creation points to a creator, of course. But that in and of itself isn't enough for salvation. Knowing that there is a designer, knowing that there is a purpose behind all of this is, is important, but even that in and of itself isn't enough. We must turn by faith to Jesus. But praise God, we can do that because he's revealed himself to us. The same God who created this world has revealed himself to us that we might live through faith. And so in Romans chapters 2, 
3 and 4, Paul does sort of an overview of the history of the Israelites, God's chosen people, his covenant people. And he's showing how God revealed himself to Israel so that through them, others too may come to believe. Through what God has done in the life of his people Israel, that all the nations might be blessed, which is the promise given to Abraham even originally in the covenant that God established. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that I will bless you and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God has made a plan, but along the way we've sinned. There's a lot of focus, a lot of attention given in Romans 2, 3, and 4 to our sin, our fallenness, our brokenness, our need for salvation. But the good news is God made a way for us to be forgiven. And so we see in Romans chapter 5, even in verse 8, that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Not only did he die for us, but now he has made a way for us to live in the power of his death, his burial, his resurrection. We saw that in Romans chapter 6, that we've been crucified to the old way of life. That, that way of life is, is dead, but we've been resurrected. And that baptism itself is even a symbol of that transformation that takes place in us as we receive this promise of new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in Romans chapter 8, sort of the, the high point of the book of Romans, I feel. The, the, the climax of, of faith in so many ways, as Paul is writing about this message of the gospel, and, and it reaches that apex in Romans 8 where we see that we are empowered to live through the work of the Holy Spirit whom we receive by faith, so that we don't have to live to satisfy the desires of the flesh. We don't have to live to gratify the old way, the old way of life, the sinful fallen flesh, but we have been set free from that through faith in Jesus. And now through the power of His Holy Spirit, we walk in newness of life. We live in the power of His Holy Spirit. And then where we left in Romans chapter 9 was we saw a tension that exists. All of this points to attention. All of this builds to this, this point of tension that we saw in Romans chapter 9 particularly. Well, if God has made a way for salvation, then why, why isn't everyone saved? And the answer is because only those who come to Jesus by faith receive forgiveness. Only those who turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and confess Him as Savior and Lord receive this Holy Spirit and the, and the saving power of Christ. It's not because of, it's not because of our, our, our nationality. It's not because we are a, a Jew or not a Jew. It's not because of our last name. It's not because of anything else but faith in Jesus. That was extended first to the Jews and then through that promise seed, that, that promise is extended to anyone, to everyone who might turn to Jesus by faith. And so we see in Romans 9 particularly that, that no one, no one remains condemned because of, of something that God has done when there's this, this free gift available to save them. I should back up and say no one who trusts in Christ remains condemned in that sin because of this free gift of God that's made available to us. Only those who call out to Jesus by faith are saved, but everyone who turns to him in faith receives forgiveness and is transformed by his saving grace. 
And now, Paul's going to ask an important question in the text that we study today. The end of Romans chapter 9 into Romans chapter 10. Because he's, again, he's, he's speaking to two groups of people here. He's writing to a church, and in this church, there's a mixture of Jews, who were the covenant people by their, by their race, by their ethnic origin. But he's also writing to a church that is largely Gentile, which just means essentially anyone who's not a Jew. And, and they are a people who have been grafted in, who have been welcomed in by faith in Jesus. And so, there was some division in that early church. There was some, some uh, contention even between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul's writing to them, and he's trying to express to them that what they share is far greater than, than their differences. And what they share is a faith in Jesus. But he asks an important question, essentially, in Romans chapter 9, these following verses, and, and then even in the early verses of chapter 10. And he asks the question, then, well, then, why does it work this way? Why does it work this way? Why is it that the Jews did not all receive salvation if, in fact, they were God's promised people? And the answer that he gives, simply, is that unless we turn to Jesus by faith, we will not be saved. It's not about, it's not about again, our race. It's not about our family name. It's not about ethnic origin. We might even say, to kind of contextualize this a little bit for ourselves today, it's not about whether you grew up in church, whether your, your grandparents or your parents were active in the church. It's not about whether you've been active in a student ministry or active in a... But ultimately, it comes down to this essential point. Have you trusted Jesus by faith? Because the defining question for all of us have I trusted Jesus by faith? Have you surrendered? Have you submitted your life to him? And so let's read together. Let's start in Romans chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 30, and we're going to read through chapter 10, verse 4. By the way, you, we understand that the, the chapter divisions that are put in the text are not, uh, are not original to Paul's writing. So when Paul sat down to write the letter to the Romans, he didn't write chapter 9, verse 1 you know, and then and, and write, and then get to verse 2. He didn't get to chapter 10, verse 1. And so there's a, a continuation of thought from chapter 9 that flows into chapter 10. The, the chapter and verse is important. It's there as a guide and, and a marker that helps us study the text, but that's not original to Paul. So, so don't get caught up on the fact that, that, that there's a, a thought that flows from one chapter into the next, okay, as we read this. Chapter 9, verse 30, what shall we say then? Now, you remember that he, Paul asked a similar question earlier already in chapter 9, and here he poses the same question again. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? There's the question, though. Why? Why does it work this way? Why? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. There's the answer. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. 
they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You probably noticed, because it's, I mean, it's right there in black and white. It's so plainly obvious that righteousness is clearly the theme of this, of this passage, right? How many times does he use this word righteousness in these verses? Obviously, he's, he's wanting to point to righteousness, but, but there's a tension in that righteousness that we saw already in chapter 9 that we see again, and the tension is between those who expected to be righteous, those who believed that they were righteous because of their race, and in fact, those who are made righteous through faith in Christ. And the irony is that the Jews, who were God's chosen people, who pursued righteousness through the law, missed salvation. And yet, the Gentiles, who were ignorant of God's law in so many ways, yet because they have believed in Jesus, they have received salvation. It's as if It's as if everything that they would have expected, everything that they would have anticipated, particularly the Jews, everything that they were raised with somehow had been turned on its head, and they're trying to make sense of it all. Why? But Paul states clearly, because they pursued it as though it were a righteousness by works. And see, no one is saved by their works No one is saved by the things that we do, but it's through what Christ has done for us. So to fully appreciate this tension, you need to understand the difference between these two groups of people. Because really, though they're a part of one church and one family by faith, they're really worlds apart. The Jews, the Jews were God's covenant people, His chosen people. They would trace their heritage all the way back to Abraham. And in an unbroken secession from Abraham to what would now have been a remnant of, of the, the original tribe of, of Judah, right? There's this, this secession of God's people who have carried this banner of faith. Now, along the way, there was a lot of brokenness and a lot of messiness. The Old Testament is full of the story of God's people and their rebellion and their sin and the way that they hardened their hearts and stiffened their necks and turned their backs on what God had called them to do. And yet, God preserved a remnant as He promised that He would. And so the Jews who are living in Rome in this time are known as diaspora Jews. The diaspora just means that they're scattered. It's taken from a Greek word, and and that just means that they are Jews who are scattered throughout, at this point, the Roman Empire, because the Romans are still the ones who are ruling, and and, and so Rome is the the, the common ruler over, certainly over the city of Rome, but much of, much of this world in which the gospel is thriving and the church is growing. And these Jews who were a part of the life of the early church struggled to a degree because they were, they were trying to balance the faith that they had in Jesus with the way that they had been raised, the traditions, the customs. And so often, they would try to place this burden on the non-Jews that they needed to follow the religious customs of the Jews. They needed to follow things like dietary laws and circumcision and uh, and, and, and the the festivals, the the feasts that they were to keep, things of this nature, because those things were so 
woven into the fabric of their being that they could hardly separate them out. And yet Paul writes and he says, listen, there's freedom to live and walk and, and move and act in the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. And he's writing and he's talking about this group of, of believers who, who have life and, and they're vibrant and they're on fire, these Gentiles, which isn't to say that the Jews weren't on fire as well, but th- there was a difference. There was an obvious difference because the Gentiles didn't follow any of those laws. They didn't follow any of those dietary customs and those practices. And so as Paul's writing to try to build bridges between the two and help them see that they're in the same family, that they're a part of the same church and that they belong together, in fact, that they're stronger together, he's, he's writing and he's pointing to the differences, but he's saying that the thing that we hold in common is the gospel. And I'm here to tell you today that what binds us together as a church is still the gospel. Now, our differences today are less ethnic and, and more ideological. But there are a lot of differences even in our midst today. There are differences of perhaps political assuasion. There are differences of uh, socioeconomic status. There's differences of where you're from, where you were raised. There's a lot of differences even in our own church body. And we're called to be united together under the name of Christ, but unity doesn't mean uniformity. We don't all look the same. We don't all, we don't all uh, dress the same. We don't all think the same. We don't all have the same thoughts and ideals. And yet all of that, we, we're to bring under the lordship of Jesus so that we keep the main thing, the gospel, the message of the gospel at the heart of who we are as a church. And that we make it our mission to love people to faith in Christ, to multiply disciples, to continue the, the work of advancing the gospel together as we focus on Christ and His power that saves us. Though our differences are not the same as the differences experienced in the life of the church, we can relate because we come into this place and all of us together under the name of Jesus, under the banner of Christ, under the, even under, well, we might say even if we were to narrow that down even more, under the, the, the name of this church body, we are called to be one and to live together for the sake of the gospel, to advance the gospel. But we need to understand that salvation, the salvation that we trust in by faith in Jesus, that salvation that we have believed in, that we that we that we have anchored our lives to that hope in, that salvation, that that salvation must remain at the forefront of who we are and what we do. We focus on the gospel. At times, people will get frustrated uh, with me because they think that I ought to uh, preach more about this political thing or that political thing, that, that I ought to speak more to this moment or, or, or that moment or this thing or, or, or that thing. And, and, uh, and I understand that. And I understand, uh, I understand the need to apply the truth of the Scripture to the issues that we face in our daily lives. But I work hard to make sure that when I stand before you and, we, and I preach the Word and we study the Bible, that we keep the main thing at the middle. Because in this room, there are committed Republicans who love Jesus 
and are hoping in the promise of Christ. But there are committed Democrats in this room who love Jesus and are trusting in the promise of Christ. There are people who think of economics one way, and they may lean toward something that, I don't know, if, if socialism would even be the appropriate title, but it, whatever you may want. Right? There are people who, who uh, they have certain ideas about, uh, about money, certain ideas about, uh, about this philosophical idea or that ideology or this. And, and yet, together, the thing that unites us is the gospel of Jesus. And the Word of God speaks clearly on some of these things. And where the Word of God speaks clearly, I will speak clearly because my goal is to speak what the Word of God says. But we're going to keep the gospel at the forefront of who we are and what we do and the message that we preach because this is the power of God for salvation. Not a political party's platform, not, uh, not, a, not a, a certain philosophy or an idea, not, a, not a, a, a cultural custom, but the gospel of Jesus revealed to us that we may have salvation through faith in Christ. And there's some tension that that introduces in our lives. There's tension that that introduces in our lives because we have to ask ourselves the question, What's gospel and what's not? What's the essential and what's the non-essential? What's the primary matter and what's secondary or, or, or so on? We have to wrestle through those things, and we have to ask ourselves, what is at the heart of who we are? Well, I believe what's at the heart of who we are is salvation through faith in Jesus. And that's what, that's what Paul's writing to the church about here. And he's addressing the, the, the tension that exists by saying, let's focus on salvation through faith in Christ. There are some who tried to achieve salvation another way, but if we will focus on salvation through faith in Jesus, we will be united together. I think it's important that he teaches us about salvation in this passage, both what salvation isn't and what salvation is, in a sense. That salvation does not come from believing or trusting in certain things, but it does come through believing and trusting in others. And so that's what I want us to see even this morning. You can see in your notes, there are two points that I see that he's saying, this is not what salvation is about, but then one clear point that he's saying, and yet this is what salvation ultimately is about. First of all, he says, salvation does not come through self-righteousness. Salvation does not come through self-righteousness. That's the tension that exists here with the Jews, right? That the Jews are asking themselves the question, but why? If we are God's chosen people, then why? Why are you saying, Paul, that we've missed it? Why are you saying that, and, and not those who have genuinely believed in Christ, you understand, but those who are Jews who had rejected Christ. How is it that God's chosen people, in, in the irony of all ironies, how is it that God's chosen people would miss the salvation that was made available to them? And Paul says it's because they were, they were trying to do it in their own strength. And that's what self-righteousness is, right? When we, when we trust in our own ability, our own goodness, our own power. Self-righteousness says that I can be righteous on my own doing. I just need to, I just need to, to work harder. I need to try more. I need to, I need to act in a way that is right and good. And self-righteousness looks to me and what I can do, or as he says plainly here, verse 32, faith as if it were based on works, as if somehow salvation comes through 
working for it or earning it. That if you're a good enough Christian, if you do just the right things, you follow just the right rules, then you will be forgiven. And Paul says that's not how it works. Self-righteousness will not save anyone. In fact, really, there's, there's this two types of righteousness here. A righteousness by faith and a righteousness, which we really might say is a, a, a false righteousness, through works. Righteousness that comes through faith happens when we trust in Jesus and what he has done for us. Righteousness through works or, again, really it's, it's uh, false righteousness, a lack of righteousness through works, happens when we try to earn that or deserve it. And the irony is that the most religious people were the one who missed it. And I think that that's something that we have to wrestle with in our day. Again, we would all be Gentiles, according to the division, that, because we're not Jews, at least I, most of us, I, I don't guess I can say that with absolute certainty, but most everyone in this room was not born ethnically a, a Jew, right? And, and so we are a part of the, the stream here of the Gentiles, and yet we still, we still have to wrestle with this tension that was present amongst the Jews and the Gentiles in Paul's day. Are we trusting in ourselves for salvation, or are we trusting in Jesus? There is no salvation apart from faith in Christ. The righteousness that is made available to us comes through faith. You know, part of what I find to be interesting about that too is, again, going back to the argument from Romans chapter 9 from where we were in May, you see in Romans chapter 9 this really difficult text. And, and if, you, if you remember, uh, you can go backward, by the way, on our, on our website. You can find the live stream. Uh, I preached through that text all the way back on the 15th of May. So if you're going to go back and look for that sermon, it's the sermon that I preached on the 15th of May. And in that sermon, we talked about this tension that exists between what Romans chapter 9 says, that there are those who are condemned in their sin. There are those who are, who are, who are condemned because they, they're deserving of God's wrath. And when you read that text, unless you carefully study it, it, sort of a, a first glance, it, it sort of appears as though God just randomly chose those who would be saved and those who wouldn't. And that God just chose, and much in the, in, in the same way that he's writing about how God chose Israel as his chosen people, and yet part of how we know that that's not what Paul is saying, that Paul is not saying that God has, that God has chosen some to be the recipients of his grace and chosen others to be the recipients of his wrath. Part of the reason that we know that is because of what Paul writes in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Why would Paul pray that they may be saved if he's already uh, resigned himself to the fact that they're condemned? Now, the point that he's making, and this is what we saw in, in that sermon in May, is that there's a tension there that we have to sit with. There's a tension there that exists that we understand that God has made a way for us to be saved. God has ordained. He has uh, predestined a, a way by which we might be saved. And according to God's plan, not everyone will be saved. There are some who will choose God's wrath 
because of, be it because of their ignorance, because they don't know any better, or perhaps because of their rebellion and their outright rejection of God's grace. But either way, only those who come to Christ in faith will be saved. And Paul is saying that even for those who were believing in their goodness, his prayer is that they might come to the place that they would receive Jesus by faith. His heart's desire and his prayer. And I think, man, what a, what a great example for us that we too would make it our heart's desire and our prayer that anyone, that everyone who, who doesn't know Jesus may come to know him through faith and that we would make it our mission to share Christ with others. But it won't come through self-righteousness because salvation does not come through self-righteousness. Secondly, we see that salvation does not come from sincerity. It doesn't come from just being sincere. He writes in verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, he says, and seeking to establish on their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul's writing about a group of people who were very sincere in their faith. They were very committed. They were very religious. They were even to the point of saying they were dogmatic. And yet, sincerity alone won't save you. Because you can be absolutely sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. And so it's not about just being committed to an idea. But it's about the idea itself that you're committed to. Have you believed in the truth? Have you trusted in something that is true? Have you trusted fully in the grace of Christ? Salvation does not come from sincerity. Salvation is is ultimately, it's a measure of faith. Salvation is not based upon what your last name is. Salvation is not based upon how active in the church you are. Salvation is not based upon how good you look from the outside to everyone else. Salvation ultimately hinges upon this key question. Have you trusted in Jesus by faith? He's going to go on to write in a few verses, and we'll study this next week in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, but he's going to go on to write in a few verses that everyone who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart will be saved. But we might also rightly say that only those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart are saved. Because it's not about sincerity or commitment to an idea. It's about have we trusted in the gospel? What is it that we are sincerely committed to? Only those who are committed to the gospel of Christ That's why he speaks of Jesus in verse 32 and 33 as the stumbling stone, the stone. Jesus himself says in the Gospels that he is the stone that the builders rejected in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 8 and again in Isaiah chapter 28, which is what Paul's quoting from here. The prophet Isaiah writes that there will come one, a Messiah, there will come one who will be the, the, the stumbling stone and that people will miss the truth because they will stumble right over it. And Paul's saying that's exactly what so many of our brothers and sisters have done. They've missed salvation because they've they've considered it an offense that they have to submit to Jesus. But only those who will submit to Christ in faith will be saved. And that really is the, the third point. Salvation comes through submission. 
Salvation does not come from self-righteousness. You don't work to earn it or deserve it. Salvation does not come through sincerity. It's not just about being committed to an idea, but it only comes through submission, which is why he writes in chapter 10, verse 3, and then the thought flowing into verse 4. They did not submit to God's righteousness. That word submit is so key. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end of the law there, there's some debate in New Testament scholarship about how that should be translated because that word end could be translated as goal. Could also, so you could read that Christ is the goal of righteousness to everyone who believes. And the idea is essentially that for anyone who trusts in Christ, we're no longer trusting in the law to save us. Not that the law ever could save us. And that was, that was really the point of Romans chapters 2, 3, and 4. That the law was never enough to save us. It's always been by faith that we have been forgiven and set free. They, those who came before, believing in a promise of future things, but us who look backward at the work of Christ on the cross, trusting in Christ and His finished work on the cross. Salvation comes as we submit ourselves to Him as we humble ourselves. Jesus tells a story in the Gospels of a coming judgment. And Jesus speaks of a day when there will be many who stand before God in that moment of final judgment. And they will say things like, well, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? And, didn't we? and, and the words of Jesus to them in that moment will be chilling. He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. What a sobering thought to think that we can be very sincere, very committed, very very sold out, and yet unless we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we will miss God's gift of salvation. I wonder this morning, have you submitted your life to Jesus Have you surrendered your heart to him? Has there ever been a moment in your life when by faith you've said, Lord, I understand that I cannot save myself, so I'm trusting in you, and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. By faith, I surrender my life to you, and I confess you as Lord and Savior. Has there ever been that moment when you have yielded your heart and your life to him, that you might receive this promise of salvation through faith in Jesus? If not, then in a moment as we have this time of response, I would encourage you that you would make this the day that you trust Jesus. That you would make this the moment where you surrender your life to him by submitting yourself to Christ. And even as we sing this song of response, this song of invitation in a moment, our staff are going to be here at the front ready to pray with you, ready to lead you in a prayer of surrender. If, if you're ready today to submit your life to Christ. Remember, salvation does not come through self-righteousness. It's not something you earn through goodness. Salvation does not come through sincerity. It's not just about being really committed to an idea or being really active in church. Salvation only comes through submitting your heart and your life to Jesus, confessing Him as Lord and Savior, and receiving His promise by faith. I want to ask if you would to bow your head and close your eyes with me. And as we prepare for this moment of invitation, even as we get ready to sing, I want to pray 
for us. And I want to pray that God would would speak clearly to our hearts in this moment. That there would be no doubt, there would be no uncertainty. You would know either you have trusted in Jesus or you would recognize your need to trust in Jesus. And today, if you're ready to surrender your life to him, would this be the moment that you turn to him in faith? Lord, speak to us now. Holy Spirit, guide our hearts even in this moment that we might know with certainty that we have trusted in you. May you move among us as we as we have this time of response. And I pray especially, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you by faith, that this might be the moment that they would submit their life to you, surrendering all they have to receive that free gift given to all who turn to you as Lord and Savior. This we pray in your name. Amen.